Chapter 4, Many Feet on the Ground. This is the place where we transition from the Gospels to the book of Acts. And if you read this continuously in Luke and then into Acts, the same author, you will see that he's clearly presenting this to us as one continuous story. And it's the story of God coming to earth in the person of Jesus and having, as it were, feet on the ground. And then in the church, in the book of Acts, it's not a different story. It's the same story, only now, through the Holy Spirit, in the people, God has many feet on the ground. And so in these following pages, we look at the story of the early church, the church, the ecclesia, the community that God has had in view since the dateless past a community that will express his divine nature in the earth. The church is made up of the hidden ones who were chosen and hid in the sun before time began. When the church is born, the hidden ones will begin to be manifested or made known. God's eternal purpose of expanding the divine fellowship that exists within the Godhead finds its fulfillment in and through the church. And all of this begins in Jerusalem. We have this, uh, this mixed crowd of people. There's 120 in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they become the church. They become the body of Christ. They become the expression of God on earth. The same thing that Jesus was only now in a way that can be distributed physically across the earth. But they don't understand that yet, and that's going to come as they come. But just look for a moment at this map, which shows us where all of the people in that upper room were from. And you can see that it's a diverse group of many colors of skin, of many cultural backgrounds, but all of these people come from synagogues and places around the world, and they'd come to Jerusalem for the Passover and after experiencing the events of the last week of Jesus' life and, and then his resurrection, they remained in Jerusalem in that upper room in order to await, as Jesus had told them to, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now as they receive the Holy Spirit, their first instinct is to meet together and to meet together often and in many different ways. They meet from home to home. They eat from home to home. They meet in the temple courts. They meet in the streets. They meet in the marketplaces. They're the the meeting together people, the ecclesia, the, the defined group of people that are meeting in the name of Jesus. Many of these people who came to Jerusalem, not just 120, but many hundreds and even thousands more, remain in Jerusalem. They see what's happening, this new thing, this fulfillment. It's not new in the sense of completely new. It's the the fulfillment of all of their dreams and prophecies from the Old Testament. And they see in Jesus Christ and in the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church of God's presence on earth in a people bound together by the love of the Holy Spirit and the unity that he brings. This is the fulfillment. And they don't leave. And so many people who are the believers become part of the church and though they come from many places, they stay in Jerusalem. And so the other disciples who are living around Jerusalem, 
do things like sell their property to support these new people who have come around. And so that's where we see that kind of thing coming from. In the first year, 30 to 31, the church quickly expands, and it expands with power and with generosity and in multiple places and venues around Jerusalem. The authorities, both the Roman and the Jewish authorities, are not really happy about this new thing. But in the first year, they just don't seem to know what to do about it. They have no reaction. They, they have no response. But in the second year, in the year 31, things begin to change. As I said, the church at this point in time is only in Jerusalem. It's not anywhere else on earth. Only the twelve who are with Jesus are doing the preaching and teaching and leading. And the people continue to travel to Jerusalem as they hear about this fulfillment uh, of the Old Testament in Jesus Christ and in the church. And they come from all over and Jerusalem fills up with people who believe. It isn't long before the twelve become overwhelmed with the ministry, with the leadership of this thing. And so uh, there's this process where they choose seven more. And this time the tw- first 12 are Greek, the seven are, I mean the first 12 are Jew, the seven are Greek. So it kind of expands the ideas uh, uh, and the abilities. And uh, soon those seven become involved in ministry beyond the feeding of widows. And we know that one of them, Stephen, begins to debate the Jews in the synagogues, or at least one of the synagogues. Now there are at that time 365 synagogues in Jerusalem. And Stephen proves to be a very, very capable debater. This is, a, this is something, you know, up till now they've been, the Jews have kind of been able, who don't believe, have kind of been able to, uh, to hold their own and then the Christians. But Stephen is kind of bridging that gap and that's a new threat. And by now, about a year after the coming of the Holy Spirit, um, the leaders kind of get their act together in terms of how they're going to respond to this thing. And so they find charges against Stephen. Very quickly, uh, they manage to get him stoned to death, the first Christian martyr. And there's a man, a very unique man, named Saul. His Jewish name is Saul. His Hebrew name is Saul. His Roman name is Paul. But this man is watching. doesn't seem that he was participating exactly in the stoning of Stephen, but he's watching. And here's what's unique about him. He's not from a Jewish community. He's from Tarshish. So he's grown up as a Roman citizen, speaking fluent without an accent, the the languages of Rome, Italian and Greek, and uh, and he, he knows that world well. But at some point in time, probably in his teenage years, his parents sent him to Jerusalem to study under one of the most prominent Pharisees named Gamaliel. Anyone trained by Gamaliel was a high-ranking person. And so Paul becomes a Pharisee, or Saul, whichever name you're using. And, uh, and so as such, he knows Aramaic and Hebrew and Latin and Greek, and he's a very zealous man for whatever cause he's got, uh, he's, he's got behind him. And also Pharisees were required to memorize the Old Testament and to have a trade with their hands that they could work and support themselves so that they could travel and and spread the Pharisaic message. So this is is Saul as we meet him, watching Stephen being stoned. And 
We don't know the events between there, but very quickly after that, he emerges as the, the pointy edge of the persecution spear, this new strategy to eradicate the church from Jerusalem. And he's very zealous. The persecutions begin. The twelve go underground in Jerusalem. They kind of disappear. And most of these believers who've come from all over the place and stayed in Jerusalem for the first year, year and a half of the church, they go home. Wherever they came from, uh, they go home. So all across Palestine, uh, from, from Galilee in the north to, to uh, all the different places, they go home to their different cities and towns and villages. And something happens that no one was expecting. Despite the fact that Jesus had said, go into all the world, they'd stayed in Jerusalem. They thought the church would be in Jerusalem, that Jesus' kingdom would come in Jerusalem. But now as persecution has sent them all home, it seems almost to their surprise, little churches, bodies of Christ, groups of believers, spring up in all of these different places and towns. And so the disciples, uh, the twelve seeing this, and the seven begin to travel among these different communities to teach and encourage and build up the churches wherever they're found. And in this situation, then Saul takes his persecution outside of Jerusalem. And we know the story well. He's on his way to Damascus to find the Christians there and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Jesus Christ physically meets Paul there on the uh, or Saul there on the road, tells him that he will he will preach to the Gentiles. Saul carries on to Damascus, and uh, after a, a little intermittent period, he becomes accepted by the Christians in Damascus. Has a, a fairly effective ministry there. At some point, we know that he leaves Damascus and goes into the Arabian desert. Uh, it's assumed, though, though never clearly stated, that he, he takes the time to go away, probably into a monastic kind of retreat of some kind, where he takes the Old Testament and, and integrates it into his thinking to, to, to see how Jesus fits, so he can explain from all the pages of the Old Testament how they show us Jesus. He comes back to Damascus. It's not long after he comes back to Damascus that there's a plot to kill him because he's an effective teacher. And so he goes to Jerusalem. He escapes Damascus and goes to Jerusalem. But he's not really met with a warm welcome in Jerusalem because the people there are still very afraid of him as a persecutor. They think it's probably a ploy, a plot to trick them. Barnabas goes out to meet Saul, becomes convinced of his conversion, of his sincerity in the faith, and he arranges a meeting between himself, Barnabas, uh, Saul, Peter, and James. Peter and James are convinced that Saul is indeed a Christian, probably called to the Gentiles, but there's, there's, just, not the, there's just not the welcome for Paul in Jerusalem. And so Paul uh, goes back to his hometown of Tarshish, and uh, there... We kind of leave him for a bit as the story continues. He preaches around the area of Tarshish, but he just kind of disappears there for a while. Some people think he goes back into the Arabian desert and, uh, or, or something like that, but he, he's out of the picture now for a little bit. The persecution slows at this time, 
And we have uh, what might be called the golden age of the church in Jerusalem and around the area of Palestine, where the apostles can preach openly. They travel around. The church is built up and established in that area. 